Thanks for joining us at Fort William Baptist Church in Thunder Bay, Ontario. We are currently working through the book of 1 Thessalonians. In this book, we see the heart of Paul for God's people. It's a yearning for them to walk in the will of God and have close fellowship with the Spirit. As we delve into this book, we will see Paul's burden that the people find refreshment in the God who loves them, that they would fix their thoughts on God's coming, and that they would live lives that please Him, knowing how to live with and before a holy God. Brothers and sisters, would you take open your Bibles and go to the book of 1 Thessalonians this morning? Our sermon text is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 18. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. So we're in this series on the book of 1 Thessalonians. And in chapters 1 through 3, Paul was giving encouragement to this church, and they needed it. And now in chapter 4, he's begun to instruct these people. And Paul continues his instruction of these Christians. So, hear God's word. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we believe that you are altogether glorious. You are seated in splendor. And we ask this morning, Lord Jesus, as we go to this text about your second coming, that by faith this morning, you would be so gracious as to show us some of your glory. Show us some of your coming glory. We need to see it. And would you show us which you sow us so that we might live by hope, hope that you will come for us and that you will establish your reign over all things. So, Lord Jesus, we need to see you in these words, and so we pray, overcome all the obstacles right now, all the stubbornness in our heart, the, the sin in our heart. Overcome it all so that we might see you in your glory. 
We confess that that is our great need this morning. It's what we want. It's why we're here. We want to see you in your glory. So be pleased to show us yourself in these words. We pray this. Amen. Amen. Well, let's start with this. Christians have something that no one else has. And so what do you have as a Christian that no one else has? You have hope. Christians have hope. And I'm not talking about a a, a blind optimism or a good feeling you might have in your gut. When I'm talking about hope, the hope that Christians have, it's something rock solid. It's something living. It's something true. And Paul writes, he put pen to paper so that Christians, so that people like us would know the hope we have in Jesus and we would know it with perfect clarity. So Paul says this in verse 13, writing to Christians like us, we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Paul is saying, Christian, you have hope, and I am working that you might know your hope. Now, as we think about this text, there are remarkable similarities between our situation and Paul's situation. Paul looked out at his world, and he saw that the people around him were were hopeless. He watched those around him live. He watched those around him die. He watched those around him grieve. And he concluded rightly that these people were without hope, that the world was hopeless. And as we think about our situation, we're 2,000 years down the timeline, 2,000 years down the timeline from Paul. And so much has changed. We drove our cars to church today. We can fly in airplanes around the world. We have iPhones with FaceTime. But Paul's conclusion still applies. It applies to our world. We live in a world devoid of hope. So just consider the most common way of understanding who we are. According to the prevailing wisdom of our age, your life began as a chemical, physical reaction. Sperm met egg, and then you became something. And ever since that point, there's been a series of chemical and physical reactions. You are essentially, according to the wisdom of our age, a very complex bottle of Coca-Cola. You're fizzing, and you're, you're bubbling. That's who you are. Why are you sad? It's just some chemical reactions. Why are you happy? It's just some chemical reactions. Why do you feel this compulsion to go to work and earn money and have a family and do all of these things? It's just these chemical reactions at work in you. And so that's our story, according to the wisdom of the age. These reactions, they go on and they go on. They grow in complexity for some reason through life. And then for some reason, every time they come to a stop abruptly, And we call this stop death. And then another process begins, one that's not so exciting as the fizzing and the bubbling of the the Coca-Cola, the process we call decomposition. And that's the end of the story for you. And so think about it. Most of the people you meet hold to that story in some form or another. The dominant cultural narrative teaches that we are just hunks of material evolved from pond scum, nothing more than that, nothing less than that. The catechism that has been taught us from our youth teaches us that your life is just a series of physical, chemical reactions and that someday those reactions will come to an end, the soda will go flat, and the story is over, that's it, there is no 
And as we think about the cultural narrative that our world lives in, that's the very definition of hopelessness. The very definition. If it were possible to measure hopelessness, to put it on a scale, we might be dealing with more hopelessness than what Paul was dealing with in his day. But here's the good news. We have the scriptures, and the scriptures will not let God's people live in a hopeless narrative. The scriptures come to us, and they tell us, you are not a hunk of pond scum evolved. Surely, you're material. You have flesh and bone. That's good. God made it. But you're more than that. God has endowed you with soul and spirit. Your life, it's much more than chemical reactions. There is indeed right and wrong. There is indeed good and evil. There is indeed true and false. There is indeed beauty in this world. And it really matters what you do with those realities. If you choose the good, if, if you love the beautiful, if you pursue the truth and you shun all the evil and untruth. But most importantly, and more on point for us in our text, death is not the end of the human story. Really, as we read the scriptures, death is just the beginning of the human story. Because after death comes resurrection, then judgment, and an eternal age. And it is this part of the story that Paul focuses our attention in our verses. Paul comes to us and he speaks plainly about these things. He speaks plainly about death, about resurrection, the coming of Jesus, and this glorious age to come. And he talks about these matters so that we would know as God's people the hope that belongs to us. We need to know it. Now, as we try to understand these verses that Paul has set in front of us, as we try to understand Paul's plain speaking, the first order of business is this. We need to get our approach right. How should we approach these verses? Let me put it in question form for you. In these verses, are we dealing with the cherry on top of the ice cream sundae, or are we dealing with the marrow in the bone? What are we dealing with here? Or to put it another way, are we dealing with something that is pleasant to think about, something fun to think about, like a puzzle to put together, or are we dealing with the very substance of the Christian faith? Our approach is going to dictate how we handle these verses. Well, the good news is Paul has already taught us how to handle these verses. Throughout this letter, Paul, as a good writer, has been preparing us for this instruction. Just listen to how Paul has already spoken about hope, training us as readers. So go back to the very beginning of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. Paul said this, Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. Move down to chapter 1, verse 9. Paul says this, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God, how you turned to, to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. We move down to chapter 2, verses 19 through 20. Paul says, For what is our hope? or joy, or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming. Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. Go to chapter 3, verses 12 through 13. Paul prays, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of the, our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. 
And so Paul throughout this letter has has been helping us, getting us ready to take in this teaching in chapter 4. He's been speaking about hope in chapter 1, in chapter 2, and chapter 3. And we can just piece that together. So as we piece it together, we get this picture. According to Paul, the Christian is marked out by hope. So you can see a Christian by their love and by their faith, but also by their hope. Christians live in hope. For example, the Thessalonians were immovable in their hope as they looked to Jesus. And the Christian is marked out by hope. Why? Because hope is central to the preaching of the gospel. In the preaching of the gospel, we hear this, Jesus will deliver you from the wrath to come. That's central to the preaching of the gospel. But it doesn't stop there as we consider what Paul wrote. Hope presses on our daily living because Jesus is coming, because we will have to stand before God, we press on into holiness. It even changes the way we serve and and do ministry. We aim for more than temporary good and short-term results. We aim for full-grown Christians, Christians who will be able to stand in the judgment of God, stand there, accept it. And so, as we listen to Paul, what are we to conclude about hope? Well, we must conclude this. Hope is vitally essential. It is vitally essential. It's something fundamental to our lives in Jesus. And if that is true, it has to change the way we approach these words. So let me frame it like this. Brother, sister, if your hope is confused, your life as a result will be deformed and disfigured. If your hope is ill-formed, your life will be unstable and unsteady. If your hope is misguided, your ministry, your service, your labor, your toil won't produce any lasting results. In fact, if your hope is flat-out inaccurate, you may very well not be a Christian at all. Hope is so important. We can change it around. If your hope is right and true... Your life as a result will be conformed to truth and righteousness. You will look differently because you are hoping in what is true. If your hope is accurate, your life will be stable and steadfast. When storm comes, you'll be able to stand up in it because you have the rock of hope under your feet. If your hope is well grounded on the truth, your ministry will not be in vain and waiting you at the end is a crown of glory. If your hope is valid, if your hope is valid, you will have life. You will have life. And so hope is everything to us. And Paul knew this. He felt it deep in his soul. And so as he looked at these Christians in Thessalonica, he began to work diligently for their hope. He labored to clear up their misunderstandings and their ignorance. He worked so that their feet might be set on the solid ground of truth. And we, as God's people this morning, get to reap from this. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians for their hope. And we can say Paul wrote to us for our hope. And so from these verses, what I'm going to do is draw out five statements that sum up the Christian hope. Because hope is vital to us, we must cling to each one of these statements because they'll shape our lives. So the first statement that we need to cling to is this, Jesus is our hope. 
Jesus is our hope. So look at the text. Just scan it over. By my count, Paul mentions Jesus nine times in these six verses. Look at your Bible. He says, we believe that, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. He says, through Jesus, God will bring with him by a word from the Lord, the coming of the Lord. The Lord himself will descend the dead in Christ to meet the Lord in the air. We will always be with the Lord. What's the effect of this? You can't maneuver a single inch in these verses without running right into Jesus. Paul gives us no wiggle room. And this tells us something rather important about hope. Our hope is Jesus himself. Just look at how Paul talks about it. And so when we speak about hope, we're not talking about a set of principles or a philosophy that will win the day, nor are we talking about a theory or a program that will finally work. When we talk about hope as Christians, we are fundamentally talking about the arrival and the unveiling of a person, and that is Jesus in all his glory. And this should make deep sense to us as Christians. It really should. For we have been taught that all things are about Jesus. At the very beginning, God made all things through Jesus and for the sake of Jesus. As the plan of redemption moved forward from from stage to stage, from person to person, it was moving forward, all of it, toward Jesus. The whole Bible, every history, every genealogy, every story, every law, every promise, every doctrine is about our Lord Jesus. So as we consider the future, as we strain our eyes to what comes next, we should not be surprised that at the center of everything is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We should expect that our vision will be Jesus in his absolute glory. And this packs a practical punch for us. And here's the practical punch. The Christian hope is only hope for those who love Jesus. The Christian hope is only hope for those who love Jesus. Just think about it. If your heart is bored with Jesus right now, his words, they're just words. His deeds, nothing important about them. His person, he just blends into the crowd. If you are bored with Jesus, there is no hope for you in the future. Why? Because the future is all about Jesus. Even worse, if you find Jesus objectionable, Here's his words, you you hate them. Here's his deeds, you do not like them. Here is his person, you turn away from him. Hear this, if you find Jesus objectionable, the future is going to be a matter of terror for you. Why? Because the future is all about Jesus. But get this, if you love Jesus, if you love him, if you treasure his person, if you love his words, If you find his deeds majestic, the future is full of hope. Why? Because the future is all about Jesus. So there's our first statement. Our hope is Jesus. Our hope is Jesus. Here's a second statement. Our hope is gospel patterned. Our hope is gospel patterned. Look at verse 14 with me. Paul says this. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. 
So Paul's working for hope, and what he does here is he begins to argue for hope. He's employing logic. And so Paul begins in verse 14 by stating his premise, and you won't find a more simple premise in all of Scripture. Paul is basing all that he's saying on this. Jesus died, he rose again, and we believe it. It's true. And so Paul states his premise, and then he moves to his conclusion. He says this, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And so Paul argues, it's very easy to follow what he's doing. He argues that because Jesus died and rose again, those who die in Jesus then, being united to him by faith, will be raised with Jesus. Paul is arguing this, if you die in Jesus, you will be raised with Jesus. Now just think about what Paul's doing in this argument. What's he doing here? Well, he's defining our hope with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is to say, the pattern of Jesus' life, what was his pattern? Death and resurrection is now our pattern as Christians. The pattern of our lives is death and resurrection. And as we think about it, this truth has already been stamped upon us. Think about when you came to faith in Jesus. You trusted in the Jesus who died and rose again. And when you trusted in Jesus, the Spirit united you to Jesus. This means that when you believed in Jesus, something happened to you. By God's Spirit, when you believed in Jesus, you died with Jesus. And because of that death, you died to sin. So if you are in Jesus this morning, you're actually dead to sin. And then something else happened. By God's Spirit, when you believed in Jesus... You were raised with Jesus. Right now, if you are in Jesus, you are raised, meaning you are alive to God. But Paul does something even more in our text in verse 14. What Paul does is he takes this pattern and he stamps it down on us even harder. He is telling us that what we experience now, while true and good and wonderful, is only partial We haven't tasted the fullness of the gospel yet. And Paul tells us that because of this union, we will all be swallowed up by the truth of the gospel in a coming day. Literally, we will share in the fullness of Jesus' resurrection, meaning our dead decomposing bodies will be raised up to immortal life to share in the life of the glorious Son of God. And this too packs a practical punch. So hear this. The Christian hope is hope for those who trust in the gospel of Jesus. The Christian hope is only hope for those who trust in the gospel of Jesus. So hope of resurrection, it belongs to those who are united to Jesus by faith. That is to say, if you don't have faith in the gospel now, sharing through that faith and the union that the Spirit brings, you will not share in the gospel and the the coming age. But we can turn that around. If you trust in Jesus, united to Jesus through the work of the Spirit, sharing in Jesus' death and resurrection now, you will share in the resurrection to come. And so that's our second statement. Our hope is gospel patterned. We can move to a third statement. And it's this. Our hope is fixed on Jesus' coming. Our hope is fixed on Jesus' coming. So Paul has already told us that the Thessalonians were doing something. And one of the things that they were doing, chapter 1, verse 10, is that they were waiting for Jesus. 
And as we think about what Paul said in chapter 1, verse 10, that's a really good way to put it. That's the Christian posture in our life. What are we doing? We are waiting for Jesus. And in fact, we've been taught by Scripture to pray a certain prayer while we're waiting for Jesus. We have been taught to pray what? Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. And so we're waiting for Jesus to come. That's clear. But we can ask, what does it mean for Jesus to come? What are we waiting for? Well, if you look at verses 16 and 17, Paul gives us an answer, one of the clearest answers in all of Scripture. And I just want to work through it really slowly. So Paul begins in verse 16, he says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. So currently, right now, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, and there he is as the Son of God. He is ruling and reigning over all things. He's ruling and reigning over all things. In fact, he's working as our high priest even now for our good. But Paul tells us in verse 16, that will not always be the case. He will, on a certain date, at a certain time, take leave of his position in heaven, and he's going to come to earth, and he's going to do it bodily. And so Paul keeps writing. He wants to describe this more. So, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven. Then Paul says, with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And so Paul wants us to understand about this coming. When Jesus leaves heaven and he comes to earth, this descent is going to be really noisy. It's going to be loud. When Jesus comes, a cry of command will be given. It was not going to be a secret. The voice of an archangel will shout it out. Imagine that one of the leaders of the hosts of angel armies is going to take that command and announce it to all the world, and it's going to be so loud, it's going to sound like a trumpet blast piercing every single ear. In fact, it's going to be so loud, it's going to pierce the very bowels of the earth. And that's the very point of this sound, that it would pierce the very bowels of the earth. And so we ask, what is this command that is given this cry? Well, we don't have to guess. It's the command of resurrection. You know that scene in John chapter 11, Lazarus is dead and Jesus comes to the tomb and Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. He is stinking and rotting. And what does Jesus say? Well, he cries out with a loud voice and he says, Lazarus, come out. What's going to happen on the last day when Jesus descends? He's going to give the cry of command and he's going to say, come out all ye dead. You're mine. Come forth. And Paul tells us the result. And the dead in Christ will rise first. This is glorious. And the linchpin to all of this glory is becoming the appearance of the Lord Jesus. Now we have to understand this because this has impact for our lives. We cannot be deceived. It is so easy to be deceived thinking that our lives are gonna keep going on as they are, that this world is gonna keep carrying on as it is day by day, week by week, century by century, that's just gonna keep carrying on. But Paul fixes in our minds, it will not. There's going to be a great disruption, and it's going to be Jesus himself. He's going to descend, and he's going to yell out. The archangel's going to herald it, and it's going to pierce everything, and the dead in Christ will be raised first. So that's our third statement of hope. Our hope is fixed on Jesus' coming. Fourth statement, our hope is for all of God's people. Our hope is for all of God's people. 
And so as we look at this letter that Paul is writing, we can gather something about it. The Thessalonians were distressed. So it's clear that some among them have died. We don't know exactly why. There's probably a good reason to think that some of them were were martyred in persecution. And so naturally that causes grief. You lose your brother and sister in Jesus, you're going to be sad. But as we read the letter, there seems to be something more than just grief going on here. It seems we can't be sure that these brothers and sisters, these Thessalonians were distressed that those who died were somehow, someway going to miss out on the joy and the goodness of Jesus' coming. And so Paul works to remedy that, and a simple point emerges. Paul wants these Christians to know this. All Christians, whether dead or alive at the coming of Jesus, will participate in the joy and glory of Jesus' coming. Look at verse 15. Paul says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Paul is saying very clearly, Thessalonians, those dead brothers and sisters you love, will not miss out on the glory and joy of Jesus. They're going to share in it. In fact, Jesus' first order of business when he comes is to come for those who have died in him. So Paul goes on. He wants to say more about this because this is really important. He provides greater detail to this. He wants the Thessalonians to taste in the present time the joy and the goodness of Jesus' second coming. So Paul writes this in verse 17. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so this is the glory that Paul is giving to God's people, and the glory that Paul gives confuses us a bit as, as readers. We read verse 17 and we think, Oh, what? Bodies are going to be flying through the air, people hanging out in the clouds? What are you talking about? This sounds strange. But the Thessalonians would have grasped immediately what Paul was saying because Paul was borrowing on the common customs of his day. Let me explain. When an emperor of great significance or any figure of great significance would come to an ancient city, the result would be fanfare and celebration. In fact, the excitement would be so great if an emperor were visiting your city That if you were a citizen, you would stop your work, you would leave your home, and you would go out. In fact, you would put your work down and you would go out to meet the emperor on his way to the city. Before he even entered the city gates, you would leave the city and then you would go meet him. And you would meet him with your cheers and your singing. You would bring gifts to him. You would bring him welcome. And then after meeting the emperor on the road, before he gets to your city, you would turn around and you would follow in the wake of that emperor, cheering and celebrating the arrival, the appearance of this great man to your city. And this is what Paul is pressing upon us. When Jesus comes, he's saying all of God's people, both the dead who have been resurrected and those who happen to be living at the coming of Jesus will be grabbed up, they'll be snatched for the biggest, for the greatest welcome party ever. And there in the clouds, all of God's people will meet Jesus And we're going to meet him with our praises, our cheers, and our worship. And then after that sweet celebration where we meet Jesus, we're going to have the privilege as God's people to accompany Jesus to inaugurate the fullness of his kingdom on the earth. We will have the privilege and the joy to welcome in the reign of Jesus absolutely over everything, tangibly manifest Jesus on earth, and we will be with the Lord to do that. This is glorious. Do you hear what Paul is saying? 
What's he doing with these Christians? He is pushing joy into their hearts. He is saying, dear Christian, none of you will be left out of the joy to come. All the glory, all the wonder, you will get to share it. For when Jesus comes, you are going to meet him as he's coming to earth. And you will meet him in the clouds, and then you will come down with him to the earth, and you shall reign with him forever and ever and ever. So brothers and sisters in Jesus, whether you live to see the Lord in his coming or whether you die, know this, you will not be left behind. You will not be left out of the glory and the joy. It's yours and it's coming. And so that's our fourth statement. Our hope is for all of God's people. Fifth statement. Our hope is forever. Our hope is forever. And so Paul has been working in this text, showing us our hope, clearing up our misunderstandings, setting before us Jesus in his glory and how we're going to share in his, in his glory. And then Paul sums it up with this. And this is the best part. This is the best thing that Paul has to say, verse 17. And so we will always be with the Lord. We will always be with the Lord. Just think about your life right now. Our grasp on Jesus is often so partial and so clouded. Just think about your experience as a Christian. Some days you can see Jesus in his glory, and your heart is lifted up and it's soaring. Some days you open up your words. You open up your Bible, and the words of Jesus come alive, and they, they, they hit your heart, and you're, you're communing with Jesus. It's as if he is there with you in that moment. But that's not always the case, because many other, ta- other times, it seems like there's these, these big banks of clouds, and they come, and they separate us from Jesus. It seems that Jesus is, is far away, and he is distant. You open up your Bible, and that text that so warmed you one day is just cold. Your heart's not doing anything. Your heart is so frustrated. It seems that God is so far away. But what is Paul telling us? We will always be with the Lord. And so Christian, hear this. When Jesus comes, you will always be with the Lord. His glory, his worth, his beauty, it will never again be hidden from your eyes, not for a moment. There will be no clouds there will be no clouds. Your heart that often frustrates you so much because it's not cooperating in love to Jesus, that heart that is often so sluggish will in a moment when Jesus comes be transformed. And your heart will never disappoint you again because you are with Jesus. In fact, never again will you have to pray that the sad prayers like Psalm 42 As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for you, for the living God. When shall I come appear before God? When shall I come appear before God? We will never pray Psalm 42 again because we will be with our God. Paul says, and so we will always be with the Lord in his glory. So believer, you must set your heart upon this hope, for this is the goodness that Paul sets before us. And that is our fifth statement. Our hope is forever. So we've worked through this text. We've worked through all the verses. We've worked through the five statements. And here's my concluding question. Well, what are we supposed to do with these five statements of hope? 
They're grand, they're lofty, they're glorious, they're good. What are we supposed to do with them? Well, listen to the Apostle Paul, verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. All of these statements are meant for your encouragement. To put that another way, these statements have been given to you that you might take them and that you might press them into your hearts and that you might press them into the hearts of your brothers and sisters and Jesus. And we need to do this. What Paul wants us to do with these words is take these truths and press them into every part of our lives. In our grief, what are we supposed to do? We are supposed to take these statements and press them in. In our fight with sin, day by day, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to take these statements and and press them in with your anxieties and your worries and your fears. What are you supposed to do? You take these statements and you press them in. What do you do in your marriage with your spouse? What do you do with your child, your children as as you rear them in the Lord? You take these truths and you press them in. What do you do with your work? You take these truths and you press them in. That is what Paul wants us to do. So brothers and sisters, hear this. We have something that no one else has. We have hope. And we know because of what Paul writes in this text what our hope is. Our hope is Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are so thankful for this word. We need hope. And we confess that we are often ignorant. We often misunderstand And so we pray now that you would clear away our ignorance and our misunderstanding and that you would fix the truth, the truth of these verses, these statements in our hearts so that we would live in light of the hope that you have given us. So cheer us now with these words, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.